by the same token, God made the world with kind of a structure, a set of principles, right and wrong, kind of built into it. And if you just ignore the rules by which the world is made, you are going to suffer. Welcome to Off the Wire with Matthew Wireman. With over two decades of leadership, coaching, and counseling experience, Matt brings a wealth of information and practical tools to help you become all that God has created you to be in your mind, body, and soul. Hey, this is Matt Wireman. Welcome back to the Off the Wire podcast. I am so pleased to have with me today Dr. Dwayne Garrett, who was a former professor of mine, and he unfortunately doesn't remember me, but that's okay. I think hopefully he'll uh, see that his his uh, teaching was uh, embraced by me as well as I'm very grateful, not just for that, that I got to study at Southern Seminary, but also for the opportunity to be able to talk with him as he just released a new book on hermeneutics. Well, Old Testament or the problem of the Old Testament is the name of the new book, which we're going to delve into. And right now, uh, Dr. Garrett is a professor at Southern Seminary in Old Testament. And you also, do you also teach Hebrew or, or, is, it, or is it Old Testament theology and hermeneutics? Or, or I mean, uh, I teach Hebrew, Old Testament, exegesis, pretty much everything Old Testament. Great. Great, great, and uh, I just I just wanted to thank you first of all for for being on the podcast. I, I, I realize that you're a busy man, and uh, I am thankful to be able to spend this time with you. Well, it's great to be here. Yeah, thank you. And so, what I was sharing with Dr. Garrett earlier is, as y'all know, this podcast tries to take good, solid theology and make it practical. Uh, a lot of times, uh, our theology can be very ephemeral and very metaphysical, which is extremely important, but at the same time, it can delve, or it, it sometimes gets divorced from, well, why does it matter? What's the cash value, or what's the brass tax, as it were? And a lot of times, people, well-meaning Christians, will talk about, you know, five ways to be a better husband, or ten ways to be a better whatever, and uh, it's devoid of any kind of theological rootedness. So, what we try to do here on Off the Wire is to try to help people put those two things together because theology is is extremely practical and uh and, and and our practice is extremely theological what we do says everything about what we believe about god and his world and so i just wanted to we're, we're going to launch right into our questions here let me pull those up and i wanted to first ask you while i'm doing that dr Gare, if you could just share a little bit about how you came to faith and then in that journey how you came to be an old testament professor. Okay. I'm one of those who I'm not totally certain about the moment of my salvation. I actually think it was when I was about eight years old, nine years old. I, at that time, rarely went to church because my parents didn't go to church all that much, but my grandfather was a very devout man, an, an old farmer, and he would spend afternoons, evenings off and over at our house. And I distinctly remember one time he was sitting watching an evangelistic crusade. I believe it would have been Billy Graham, but at that age, I really had no notion of who was who. But I was sitting there watching it with him, and the message uh, spoke to me very powerfully. I can remember being extremely moved and extremely even fearful. And uh, when the preacher called on people to pray to receive Christ, I believe at that time I did. 
However, as I say, my family was not really very active in church at that time. And so a few years went by, but I developed a very close friendship with a boy across the street about my age. He was a very active Christian, and we had a lot of discussions on all kinds of issues, including religion. And at one point, we were talking about religion, and I said something to the effect that, you know, God probably receives people no matter how they come to him. And he said, no, that's not right at all. Uh, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And I just knew immediately that that was true. And, um, and I accepted it immediately. And that was the point at which I really began to become active as a Christian. I began to um, go to church, to pray. He and I began to meet together for prayer, things like that. And so it continued from that point on. My path to becoming an Old Testament professor is quite unusual in that I didn't go through any kind of a process. Uh, Very commonly, people will say, well, you know, I went into the pastorate or I was planning to go into the pastorate and I just loved the academics and I knew God had called me to this and and went through this whole pilgrimage of, of discerning that they were meant for teaching and academics. I almost knew immediately that I was going to teach in seminary, which was weird because I knew nothing about seminary. And but what, very, where, did, where did you go for, for seminary at this time? And how old? Well, this was this was when I was uh, you know like uh, in in ninth grade. Oh wow! Okay, okay. And so <laughs> oh, I just wow. knew nothing about it. I mean, yeah. I had just really started going to church. Okay. But I knew almost immediately that I would wind up in theological education. And again, there was no process to it. Wow. I just knew. And the same thing holds true for why I went into Old Testament. I never recall any kind of a process whereby I thought, you know, well, I really like the Old Testament. In fact, in my university, I went to Rice University in Houston, and I was a classics major, majored in classical Greek. And so I just studied an enormous amount of Greek, but it never occurred to me that I would pursue New Testament work. It was always clear to me, ultimately, hmm. that I would go into Old Testament studies. And again, hmm. there, was, there was no real process to it. It's just I knew this was what I was going to do. Hmm. Hmm. And so that's, that's how it worked out. Yeah. Did you, did, was the church that you were at, was it highly theological? I mean, for you to have like these eruptions, as it were, in, in, in your life and say, oh, because most people in ninth grade wouldn't know, like, yeah, I'm going to be a seminary prof. <laughs> Not at all. In fact, wow. because my family had originally, they were Methodists, even though they weren't very active in the church. The first church I began to attend was uh, a Methodist church. Hmm. And the Methodist Church at that time was well on a path towards becoming a very liberal church. Now, I'm very grateful for what I got at my church there. It was, it was very helpful to me, but it certainly was not academic and certainly not evangelical. But then, as my convictions grew, theological convictions over the course of the next year and a half or so, I became convinced of Baptist theology and moved over to the Baptist church and was baptized. 
And that church as well was, uh, it was conservative. It was a church that preached the gospel, but it was a very, very practical church. It was not at all academic. So I, I mean, it just, this was kind of a bolt from the blue. <laughs> it just happened. And I, I really have no exclamation other than to say, you know, I just knew. And this mm. was, wow. that was it. No, that's great. I want to get in, right into some of these more academically related questions as pertains to the Old Testament here in a moment, particularly as it relates to your, your new book. But I wanted to ask, you know, one of the, one of the biggest misconceptions, I'll, I'll go ahead and lay my cards out, is that, you know, you, you have these two conceptions of God. Well, mm-hmm. in the Old Testament, he was wrathful. In the New Testament, he's gracious. And I would love to have you just kind of explain a little bit, like your, your view of how, how we ought to bring these two testaments together, because we do worship one God who hasn't changed. And yet at the same time, people seem to get taken aback, I think, for one, in, in you know, some of the you know, the requirements that were put on Israel, especially as they were going to the promised land, and then some of the practices that, that, were, that were prescribed in the Old Testament. And then you get Jesus, the Messiah, uh, in the New Testament. It can seem a little disparate and would love to hear you just explain. And how, how would you explain to somebody that, no, these aren't two different gods or two different even... Di- somebody may say, you know, this, I believe in the same God, but he's different disposition altogether. So mm-hmm. how would you talk with someone? And then how would you also just say, you know, this reveals actually something about God's character in both of these Testaments in different aspects? Yeah, that's a big question. First of all, you can understand why people would feel this way when you consider, for example... You know, you have in the Psalms where David is so often praying for God to punish his enemies, you know, save me from my enemies, punish them, and so forth. You have a lot of laws that relate to capital punishment in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And so you do have a lot of things that make the Old Testament and uh, the people who worship the God of the Old Testament look pretty ferocious. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you have, uh, I mean, famously, for example, in the story of the woman taken uh, in adultery, Jesus saying, let him who has no sin cast the first stone. Mm -hmm. And so people look at those and they say, wow, that is a totally different situation. I would say, first of all, in reality, the wrath of God is very clear in the New Testament. As Mm -hmm. I'm sure you know, there virtually every text in the Bible that relates to hell is in the New Testament, mm-hmm. and most of them from the lips of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so that, I mean, you, you can't get much more wrathful than that. Yeah. So it is a, a misconception, and I would say there's two aspects to it that we need to keep in balance. One is the fact that the Old Testament life, the life of the people, the, their day-to-day life, you want to put it this way, their day-to-day religion was based around the law. Now, we could get into that, and I'd be happy to, but for the moment, let's just understand they lived by the law with all of its regulations and all its penalties and all that. And of course, in the New Testament, we have the fact that we are saved by uh, grace through faith, not by the works of the law. And so, that does 
present the notion that you have two very different religions between the Old Testament and the New. Now, I think that can be resolved, but that, again, helps explain why people think that way. The other thing to bear in mind, though, is that both the New Testament and the Old Testament are dealing with important aspects of life. And the Old Testament gives a lot of attention to the fact that in day-to-day life, there are repercussions for your actions. Mm. Just to take a really simple, almost trivial one, you know, in Proverbs, you have frequent teachings to the effect that if you are lazy, you will be impoverished. Mm -hmm. And that's just a straightforward way of teaching. This is how life is. Life can be tough. Life is something that can be challenging. And there are bad people that you're going to have to deal with. And the Old Testament deals with that kind of thing quite frequently. Hmm. The New Testament, to paint a very broad-brushed picture, knowing there are many exceptions to this, the New Testament is focused more on the vertical relationship between us and God. Yes, we're sinners, but Jesus died to take away our sin. He rose from the dead in triumph over the law and the penalty of sin. And we have this relationship with God that God offers us and that we need to maintain by walking in the faith and in righteousness and so forth. So you just, in the New Testament, you don't have as much of kind of the nitty gritty of life that you have have in the Old Testament. And that makes the Old Testament appear kind of more more harsh, more kind of earthly, and, uh, and thus gives people a sense that there's something wrong. But in fact, you know, you need to know about both. You need a balance in order to have a wholesome life. So that's how I understand that. Yeah. I, you know, One of the things a lot of times you'll hear, you mentioned Proverbs, and as it relates to just living life in general, uh, I remember I heard someone say, well, you know, if you raise a child up in the way of the Lord, then he won't depart from him. So I'm going to claim that promise, and I'm going to live my life, and I'm going to know that one day he's going to be a Christian. And I said, well, these things in Proverbs are generally true, but not uh, de facto, all the time, in every circumstance, true. Is, is that, would that be wrong of me to say? Because then I was charged with saying, well, you don't believe the Bible is inerrant <laughs> because you're saying no. it's generally true. No, I think what you're saying is exactly right. I mean, Proverbs, the whole idea of a proverb is a general truth you should live by. Let me give you a quick excursus on this. First of all, Proverbs is for young people. I mean, who is addressed in the book? Mm-hmm. my son, yep. someone who's by definition young and inexperienced. So when you're teaching a young person, especially a child, you don't hit them with all the complexities of life. You don't hit them with, you know, this is true, but there are exceptions and all that kind of thing. You just say, okay, this is right. Yeah. This is wrong. Live by it. And you don't worry about shades of gray and fine points and all that. Mm-hmm. And now to give a specific example, you know, everyone knows the proverb, a soft answer turns away wrath. Is that true? <laughs> well, of course it is. As a general rule, if 
somebody's mad at you, but you answer calmly and respectfully, they will calm down and you can have a discussion. Is it always true? Is there never a case that someone is so hot-headed or bad-tempered or, or is just so upset that no matter what you say, they're going to keep screaming? Well, of course there are occasions where that happens. Is the proverb true? Yes, the proverb is true. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that you will never, ever in your life mm-hmm. come upon a situation where you answer reasonably, but the other person is unreasonable. That happens. So I think your answer would be correct. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating. I think that so many times, especially as it relates to the Old Testament, because of the complexities, I mean, it's, you know, in, in some instances, you're, you're divorced 4,000 years from what, when, this, when things were written, uh, and even more uh, as it relates to the, the biblical accounts and the biblical stories. And a lot of times, you know, when, when believers in 2020 come to the Old Testament text, they, they have a very thin understanding, to use Kevin Van Hooser's terminology as it relates to hermeneutics, this, this kind of superficial understanding of, of the Old Testament, and they start claim, quote-unquote, claiming promises that are for particular instances at particular times and particular people. And, uh, and, that, and, and I want us to get into this issue of hermeneutics as it relates to the Old Testament. And one of the things that was also asked, because as it relates to the, the Old Testament, sometimes Old Testament studies is a pathway towards liberalism. You, you alluded to that a moment ago in your own story. Why do you think that is? In, in bringing together some of these things about assumptions that people make about the Old Testament and then moving towards, you know, higher critical theories and these kind of things. But like, why, why is that? Or does it seem to be the case? And I, I mean, this was a question that right. someone on my social media had asked when, I found, when they found out I was going to be interviewing you. And they, they said, well, why, why is that? And do you have any insight as to why that can be? Well, I would say two things. To some degree, that is kind of illusory. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is, I think, if you want to put it this way, heresy or heterodox thinking in New Testament studies mm-hmm. or in theology tends to be much more easily disguised. Mm-hmm. And whereas in the Old Testament, you know, if you start to go a different path, it, it becomes pretty obvious pretty quick. The Wait, other what, thing... Real, real quick, what, what are some of those kind of red flags, if you will, as you're talking with somebody you're like, uh, I don't think we're speaking the same language. Like, what, what would be some red flags that people could be looking for? Well, for example, let's just compare the, the New Testament to the Old Testament story. So, in the Old Testament one might, for example, conclude that there was no exodus. Mm. Or if there was an exodus, it was very small. It was not at all what the Bible describes. It was only a few tribes or something like that. And that is just so obvious that nobody can miss it. Mm. But in, for example, gospel studies, you know, when you get into tradition, criticism of the gospels, trying to describe where the gospel stories came from, you can actually have some views of the sayings of Jesus and where they came from that are start to get pretty far removed from what the the text actually says but it's it's not as obvious 
So that's kind of what I mean by that. Okay. Okay. And so that, that again is the kind of thing that can happen that, that just makes it very obvious. And so in one sense, as I say, the fact that the idea, you know, that you're going to have a, a theological seminary and the old Testament department's liberal, but no one else is really, they're probably all pretty much in the same general ballpark. Yeah. Uh, it's just not quite so obvious mm. uh, in certain areas. And so the other thing would be that the New Testament and basic Christian theology has certain hard limits that if you cross this, you have clearly crossed into heterodoxy. Mm-hmm. So, if, for example, if you deny the resurrection of Jesus, or in theology, if you deny the doctrine of the Incarnation or the Trinity, I mean, you have clearly walked away from Orthodox Christianity. But because those hard limits aren't so obvious in the Old Testament, there can be a temptation to start to, um, you know, to deviate in the Old Testament, where in, in the New Testament or in theology, you're going to have to make a decision if this is really where you want to go. So there, there can, you know, it's kind of both and. In one sense, the distinction is, I think, illusory. In the other sense, there is a way, there is a reality that it's kind of easier to sort of slowly slide into heterodoxy in the Old Testament than it is in other areas of Christian theology. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I, I will, will say one of my favorite essays that you've written was the Frankenstein hypothesis. It has oh. been it has been one of the most helpful articles that I go back to. It was in was it in Jets or was it uh, the General yeah. or was it in Southern's Journal? I, I, I believe it was Jets. It was so long ago, but yeah, thank <laughs> you for remembering it. Yeah, it's I a, really remember it. Myself. I do remember writing it where it went. That's kind of fuzzy to me. Yeah, so whoever's listening to this, I would recommend it highly to you because it is so helpful and and goes through several test cases that and what 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 we're referring to in the Frankenstein hypothesis is that what's called the documentary hypothesis or you might hear Old Testament scholars talking about JEDP or these four different sources for the Old Testament and uh, Dr. Garrett doesn't excellent job of just giving a, a brief history of it, but then theologically, why that's problematic, but then even more granularly, granularly, if that's a word, just some test cases and saying, well, if this is true, then this is the text that they would be reading, and it doesn't make any sense. And so, it's called the Frankenstein Hypothesis, and you can just Google it and find a, a PDF of, of it online, I'm sure. If you don't, then just message me, and I'll be happy to send it to you. It's, it's excellent. One of the things I do remember from your Old Testament class, there's there's many things, but in your Old Testament theology class was that you said it's really difficult to talk about a center of the Old Testament so that there are many different ways to get at the theology, what is the theology of the Old Testament. And you did it, I, I thought, just a really helpful analysis to say, well, a lot of it is how are you, what lens are you going to put on? How are you going to find this quote unquote center of what the Old Testament is always about? And you, you offered what you thought was the center or centers of the Old Testament, which I thought was really helpful. And I'd love for you just to kind of share a little bit as we approach the theology of the Old Testament, what is this grand meta-narrative of the Old Testament that we need to have in the back of our minds as we read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and so forth? Well, 
Of course, you took the class a long time ago. <laughs> My thinking may have evolved a little since you took the class. So, you know, if you look in the book, you can see like what I've come to in my conclusions. Yes. But here's how I understand it. I would actually argue that there are two distinctive centers in the Old Testament. The one is the election of Israel, and that dominates almost all the Old Testament. The basic idea is God chose Israel for a purpose. And it comes out at the beginning in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, where God chooses Abraham and tells him to go to the place that he will send him. And, you know, whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed in you. And so God has chosen Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, the nation of Israel, to be the vehicle for blessing the world, which I take to mean essentially reconciling the world to himself. The world is estranged from God. And everything in the Old Testament basically follows the fact that God chose Israel to fulfill this purpose. So, as Christians, we know that the ultimate fulfillment is in Christ, that it was ultimately through Jesus that God accomplished this great mission. But throughout the Old Testament, everything in in almost all the books, except a few I'll mention here, Almost all the books are heavily focused on Israel as the chosen people of God with a mission from God. And so the books will tell at length the history of Israel, giving very little attention to other nations except how they relate to Israel. They will talk about the covenant between God and Israel and all the laws that are involved in that. They will talk about the messages of the prophets to Israel exhorting Israel to be faithful to its covenant and its calling. They will give the words of the poetry, the praise, the prayers of Israel in books like Psalms and Lamentations. And so in all these books, you're focused on the fact that God chose Israel for his purpose, and we're following their story and seeing how God revealed himself to them along the way as we move towards the fulfillment of this great purpose. Now, there are a handful of books that I think are distinctive. They do not in any way deny or contradict or reject or they're not ignorant of what the other books are about, but they are distinctive. And those books are what's commonly called wisdom literature. Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, and I would include Song of Songs. And in these books, you have some very striking differences. Yes, they are written by Israelite authors like Solomon, generally, but uh, they do not follow the story of Israel. They don't talk about things like the priesthood the worship, the sacrifices. They don't concern themselves with what is the great, great sin of Israel in the rest of the Old Testament, idolatry. You know, you look through wisdom literature, idolatry and worship of other gods is just not a topic, even though it dominates the, all the other books. And um, Proverbs... Those books? Is it just I'm an sorry? Is it, Should we treat it as it's merely an assumption that they have? Uh, Well, it's an assumption, but, you know, it's what does the book focus on? Mm. 
I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying Proverbs in any way contradicts the other books. It does not. Mm-hmm. I'm not, it does not say idolatry is okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what it does do, it deals with something else. And wisdom literature essentially deals with, how can we put it, life in this world, the practicalities of life in this world, and it essentially functions from a single premise, that God is the creator of the world, Mm. that God set the rules by which life works, and if you want your life to be a good life, you've got to follow the rules built into creation. Mm. Almost like a general revelation type understanding of things? Yeah, very close to general revelation. And so it's basically there is this kind of embedded truth that the Bible calls wisdom, that is built into the structure of the world and the structure of the human soul, Mm. and that if you live by these things, you will do well in life, Mm -hmm. and if you violate them, you will wreck your life. Mm. And so, you know, that's why, again, in Proverbs, you have all kinds of teachings that relate to, we just mentioned, laziness, that relate to avoiding adultery, all these kinds of things whereby people mess up their lives. Now, again, there's no contradiction between these two sets of books, but what is the foundation for all the rules in, for example, election literature? Well, it is that God made a covenant with Israel, and he laid down laws, you know, in Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Leviticus. The, the basic idea of it is the rules come from the fact that we Israelites have this covenant with God. He has given us this rule book called Torah, the law, and we need to live by it. Now, again, Proverbs does not say forget Torah. You don't need Torah. That's not the point. But it does say, look, God just built the world in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And this is how life works. And if you want to do well in life, you better live according to the rules by which the world works and by which God governs the world. And so, again, it is not a contradiction. They don't oppose each other in any way. But the one is focused heavily on Israel stands before God in covenant relationship with him when they ratified the covenant in Exodus 24, they said, everything that the Lord has said, we will do. Mm. And so they are pledging themselves to obedience to a set of commands given under the covenant. Whereas Proverbs has Lady Wisdom saying, you know, God made me at the beginning of all his works, and I was there when the whole world was put together. This is Proverbs 8. And what she is saying is, this is how the world is made. Mm-hmm. And so to give a simple example related to the wisdom that you have in Proverbs, we know it's a natural law that there is gravity. We know if you ignore this law, you're going to hurt yourself. Mm-hmm. And by the same token, God made the world with kind of a structure, a set of principles, right and wrong kind of built into it. And if you just ignore the rules by which the world is made, you are going to suffer. And so again, that's why 
In Proverbs, you're going to have teachings, say, that relate to laziness, whereas you don't have those in the law. And the point is not that the law thinks laziness is okay. The point is that the law is concerned strictly with, here's what God requires of you, Israel. Whereas Proverbs is saying, here's how the world is made. You better follow it. And so to come back to your original question, I believe the vast majority of the Old Testament is concerned with the fact that Israel is God's chosen people for a purpose that he has to bring about the uh, reconciliation between himself and the human race. And so the vast majority of the Old Testament is going to follow this path of how God relates to Israel, how Israel relates to God, and then all the prophecies about how it's all going to work out in the end. Whereas in wisdom literature, it's, it's uh, again, not contradictory, but it is saying God made the world a certain way, and let's consider how we should live in this world in order to thrive and not make a wreck of our lives. So that's how I understand, if you will, the structure of the Old Testament. Would it be analogous to how Paul speaks in the Oropagus on this? You all know that these things are true, the God or the, the revelation that you already have. You are living in accord with those things. Now I'm going to declare to you this particularized God whose name is Yahweh. I mean, it, would, it, would it be analogous to how Paul handles those things where, okay, I'm, I'm going to talk to you Athenians about this God that you worship that you don't know, I'm going to declare to him. And, and, and in the same way, in the Old Testament, we see this general way that the world works out and you can attest to it in the way that you live day to day. And, but then particularly, this is, this is how God has, has structured things specifically through, through Israel. Or is that, or is that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think that's a good analogy. What I would say perhaps a little more particularly related to the New Testament is that you have in the New Testament authors an awareness of the fact that, you know, in the pagan world, there was an understanding of what you would call virtue. Mm -hmm. And so sayings like, you know, bad company ruins good morals. Mm -hmm. And it's not that they didn't need God, but it's, but it's also not that they had absolutely no understanding of right and wrong. Yeah. They clearly did have understanding of that there were virtues that a person needed to cultivate in order to succeed in life. Gotcha. And so I think, you know, I, I think Paul would certainly honor and recognize this fact, although, of course, he would say that's not going to get you into heaven. Mm -hmm. And so in the same token, you know, if you follow Proverbs, and, you know, I keep using this illustration because it's the simplest illustration, yeah. and you're not lazy, that's great. You know, you're a hard worker, you'll probably succeed in life, but that won't save you. In order to be saved, in order for people to know God, it's going to have to be based upon what God has done through the election of Israel through choosing Israel, through bringing Christ into the world, and that sort of thing. And so, you know, I'll put it this way. In the vast majority of the Old Testament, and I, I mean including, you know, Ruth, Esther, obviously Deuteronomy, 
or something like Joshua, Judges, doesn't matter, Lamentations. I can demonstrate it. the focus is always on Israel as the people of God and how they relate to God and how God relates to them and what God requires of them and where it is all headed. Whereas in Proverbs, and with a somewhat different emphasis in Job, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, the focus is on, you know, how does the world work? It's understood that God made the world and it's made by his rules, but that's, in my opinion, kind of more the focus of those books. Mm-hmm. And then, if, if then, so, so to put a fine point on it, there, you, say, you say that there are two centers, as it were, one being the election of Israel, the other being the way God has structured his world, or how, how would you? I would just call it wisdom. wisdom. But yeah, by wisdom, I do mean that God as creator of the world has things set in a certain, has, has built rules into the world. Gotcha. And then how does that then translate to the New Testament believer? I mean, you know, you, you have these laws. I, I, I can kind of see it in my mind, but I'd love for you to just explicate like continuation of the law. So, you know, stoning people or, you know, capital punishment for various crimes of, of slandering or, or talking back to your parents. And the, I mean, how, how, do, how does the New Testament believer handle those cultic practices within Israel, but then also the ethical prescriptions and proscriptions that you see, I mean, should, are, are we looking forward to a day where we're going to have those things instituted again? Or w- what, was the, what was the point of the, those things as it relates to Christ and then the fulfillment of and, and the abrogation or non-abrogation of the law? I mean, how, how would you articulate that? Well, I would begin answering that kind of by going back to what we were just talking about. Actually, in wisdom, that's, that's easy. Mm. Because when a Christian reads wisdom literature, when a Christian reads Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, Job is distinctive, so let's focus on those. Mm -hmm. When a Christian reads Proverbs, the lessons are pretty direct. Yes, you're a Christian, you belong to God, you're justified by grace through faith, but you know what? There are rules to life, and you got to live by those rules. You know, so don't commit adultery, or you will ruin your life, you'll make a wreck of your life. Proverbs chapter one, if you join, you're speaking to a young man, you join a gang, you are going to destroy your life. You know, don't do it. Don't be unreliable. Don't lie or you'll get a reputation as a liar. All those things come over to New Testament Christian life just pretty directly, really, mm-hmm. without hardly any, you know, need for translation at all. Yeah, yeah. So when we come to the Old Testament, the big issue is, first of all, the law was given as the covenant document between God and Israel. I mean, it is God made the Sinai covenant. As I just said, Exodus 24, the Israelites said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. And so they have all these rules set down that govern their nation in their particular setting, in their particular time, as they await the fulfillment of all God's promises. There's a great deal to be said about what the law means to Israel. Let me just sum it up basically following what Paul has said in Galatians. The law was given to them as a pedagogue, which basically means It was to keep them in line as much as possible 
until the coming of the fulfillment, namely the Messiah. What was the great temptation of Israel? It was always the temptation to be like the nations, to be totally assimilated culturally into the culture of the nations, and in particular to their gods, to their idolatry. And the temptation was, the danger was, that Israel would effectively cease to exist. They would become so assimilated to the nations and to their culture that they would cease to exist as as the people of God. And the law was given to keep that from happening. And for all of Israel's sins and their failures, it worked. Because by the time Jesus came into the world, again, for all the sins that you see, for their failures, the failures of the Jewish leadership in the time of Jesus, they were still essentially the people of Israel, the people of God. The law in its function as pedagogue had worked. And Paul tells us that that function is going to come to an end and does come to an end with the coming of the new covenant in Christ. So then what does it mean for us? And so, you know, you mentioned a lot of the things in the Old Testament law that are distinctive. The sacrificial system, the whole concept of cleanness and uncleanness. You know, you can go on and on with the things they had that are distinctive, that are not part of Christian life and worship. Well, in my opinion, the basic function of the law here is essentially that it is still canonical for us and it is still our teacher. I'm sure you know Torah, translated law generally, but it actually means teaching. So what does the law do for us? The law is our teacher, but now how does it work? Well, that's, of course, where we have to be very careful and work very hard. But I would put it like this. First of all, although the problem is, so to speak, much greater in the Old Testament, it is not totally different from the New Testament. In the New Testament, in books like Galatians and 1 Corinthians, you have issues taken up that many modern Christians had, have never considered, have never been a problem for them, have never been an issue they faced. So, for example, Galatians. Right. Galatians, you know, should should Christian men all be circumcised and proselytized to Judaism? We never even think about that. It's not an issue for us. Or food sacrifice to idols in 1 Corinthians. Now, there may be some cultures where that becomes an issue, but for many Christians, certainly in the Christian West, that's generally not something they will ever face or have ever faced in their lives. So what do we do with those passages? Do we just say, well, hey, they, you know, jettison those passages. They don't mean anything to us. Mm. Well, of course we don't do that. We recognize that there is a cultural situation going on in the first century that may not directly apply here, but that everything Paul said in his letters and everything Jesus said in his teachings still is authoritative for us and has meaning for us. We simply have to work a little bit to kind of translate it to see how the message of Galatians relates to us or how the teaching on food sacrifice to idols relates to us or, you know, whatever it is. Granted, in the Old Testament, the gap is bigger 
because first of all, Israel at that time is under the Sinai covenant. We're not. It is a vastly different situation. You know, it is an ancient Near Eastern country, whereas, you know, we are a modern Western country with the Christian church. So, of course, there are huge differences. Still, the basic principle applies. And so, when we look at things, say, like kosher laws or the sacrifices, we need to ask ourselves, all right, first of all, what did it mean and why was it significant to ancient Israel? And then, knowing that, how can this be meaningful, authoritative? How can it teach me? So, let me just kind of give you a, a very, very quick summation of one example I use. I've already mentioned kosher. So, what you have in the Old Testament and its kosher laws is essentially the Israelites, through keeping kosher, are learning discipline. Mm. They're learning to say no, just to say, well, there are some things we just don't eat, and that practice Mm. teaches them self-restraint. You know, it teaches them that they're not the center of the whole universe Mm. and that they, they need to have limits in their lives. They need order. They need self-discipline. And having these kind of restraints, even though strictly speaking, you know, eating shrimp is not wicked, still just learning to discipline yourself, learning to have limits has great significance just for the health and strength of your soul. And so Paul himself will say, you know, all things are permitted, but not all things are beneficial. God made the stomach for food and food for the stomach, but both of them will perish. Both will pass away. And so Paul speaks of how, you know, it's a good idea just to have limits in life. And so, you know, a Christian could take that and apply it and could just through certain disciplines understand that, yeah, by keeping this particular discipline, whatever it is, you know, like, I don't know, someone says, I'm not going to watch TV or, or someone imposes certain dietary restriction on himself or whatever it is. By doing this, it's not that you sort of earn, you know, points with God. That's mm-hmm. not the point. The meaning is you acquire a sense of discipline. Mm-hmm. You just, you strengthen your soul by learning to say no to certain things. And so when it really matters, when it's something really big uh, that is a moral issue, then it's a lot easier to say no if you've already developed a disciplined life. And so I think that's very in keeping with what Paul says and how he lives his life. You know, I discipline my body. And so what I'm saying, though, using that as an illustration, is that we need to take the Old Testament laws and and say, okay, what do they really mean? How did they apply apply Mm -hmm. in ancient Israel? And then what lessons there speak to us? Yeah, I love that because a lot of times people will talk about, well, it's God's word, so we need to apply it. And they take this one for one, you know, carrying it over you know, 4,000 years or more. And I love how you started with, with Paul being able to say, well, no, no, the, 
you know, we're not worrying about circumcision right now in our present day context. So how are we going to bring that issue over in, you know, so I, I really appreciate you bringing it to the very particulars of, of that, because I think a lot of times people say things generally speaking like, well, it's God's word, therefore it's, it's applicable. It's like, well, yes, but not in the same way. And to do it the same way will do harm to you actually, you know. Thanks for listening. If this episode served you, share it on social or with a friend. As you continue your journey, you can always visit us at MatthewWireman.com. Until next time, keep growing and keep going.